For some artists and graphic designers, there's something special about an antique Vander Cook printing press. I'm stepping on a pedal and some grippers raise and then I put my piece of paper and the press kind of grabs the piece of paper where it's lined up and then I roll the press forward. And so as I roll the press forward, the rollers roll over the plate and ink the plate and then the paper then is rolled and pressed onto the plate. So that's what I'm gonna be doing right now. And the paper's rolling onto the plate. And then I pick the paper up and I roll the press back. And then I have my print. This is book artist Kristen Camus Adolfson. We found her in a sunlit corner of the Virginia Center for the Book, where she was printing a page for a collaborative book called Bird Talk. So the book is celebrating the Audubon's Year of the Bird. So it's the, uh, the anniversary of the 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So we are all picking a wild bird from North America and interpreting their call or their song. For example, the Eastern Towhee has a call that says, drink your tea. And so that would be a page of the book about the Eastern Towhee and its bird call. For me, it's a very physical thing. So like I have to be like walking with the press and turning the handle and pulling things out. And so I'm putting my whole Besides as an artist, like making the design in the beginning, when I'm actually printing, it's very tactile. I'm putting my whole body into it. So every print is a product of that. And so it's, it's actually kind of meditative to me, um, kind of like a practice. I used to be more of a perfectionist, but when I started setting type and printing letterpress, I learned that I have to let go a lot more because Every print is different, every print is individual. You know, it's whether it's how much ink is on the press or you know, something might shift slightly. So I, I really like that very organic nature of it. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, makers and maker economies. Later in the show, we visit an innovative studio where students solve design problems in their city. If you think about design as a luxury that not everyone can afford, then you start realizing that there are many people within the community who can't afford the design services and there's a need for low cost and innovative whimsical design. And coming up, a craft brewer gives us a lesson in making beer. I, I wouldn't necessarily get into it if your only goal is to save money on beer. Um, but if you're, if you're looking to have a hobby that's a really rewarding pursuit, um, then I think it's absolutely worth it to do at home. But first, we're in the midst of a craft renaissance, or what might be called a maker movement. But it's not the first. Ben Brewer is a professor of sociology at James Madison University. He says the current third wave maker movement has something in common with the first and second waves. Ben, it feels like there's an uptick in crafting or what some people might call the maker economy. Is that true? Is there an increase in that or does it just feel that way? 
Uh, no, I think it's true. I mean, a lot of folks are calling what we're in right now the, the so-called third wave of the craft economy movement. What people think of as the first wave was really the, the British arts and crafts movement that came along in like the 1880s, but then spread across Western Europe and the Nordic countries. And there was a big offshoot in the United States as well. This is what gave us a lot of the craftsman houses and a certain sort of aesthetic style as well in the United States. You know, mass production, the assembly line model, all of that had had stripped people of the knowledge and the skills that they'd once possessed. And so the arts and crafts movement, not only was it an aesthetic style, but it was very much grounded, especially in Britain, in the idea of pushing back against mass production and trying to bring back craftsmanship, making stuff from start to finish rather than playing a small part in a larger division of labor. So what came after that? When was the second wave? Right. What a lot of people think of as the second wave of the maker economy came along in the late 1960s, this kind of resurgence of interest in handicrafts, in kind of small-scale production that was connected with the hippie movement, right? Uh, So this was people that were were kind of rejecting a certain degree of what they perceived to be conformity in mainstream culture, you know, the kind of soullessness of of uh, conventional ways of of dressing and decorating houses, and they wanted this more kind of back to the nature, back to the land kind of movement um, of also kind of doing it yourself, right? So instead of relying on this big, you know, soulless uh, production machinery kind of system, you would be having people create for themselves, you know, through their own their own labor and using their own resources locally re-empowering people to be more in direct control of their own lives. What were some of the actual ways that they embodied this? Was it by farming the land or making clothes? Well, I mean, I think in terms of craft and some of the artisanal production, yeah, it was a, a, a much bigger interest back in clothing again and textile arts and crafting and dropping out of a system that required us to buy all of these things. And you had this mass production consumer economy that pumped out all of these things that people were instructed to buy through advertising and mass marketing. We want unique items. We want to express our individuality, reclaiming a certain kind of autonomy and independence, you know? Where do you think the first inklings of the third wave, the current wave we're in, of the maker economy and the maker mentality, the craft mentality began? Right. You know, in a lot of ways, it's it's parallel to what was going on with the earlier two waves. Again, you had people kind of rejecting um, the dominance of what they perceived to be a, a sort of soulless, faceless mass culture, right? By the early 2000s, with the third wave of craft, you had people starting to, you know, reject the idea of like having everything produced abroad. You know, in the United States, there was you started to have this kind of more localist sort of movement about you know, thinking about where the stuff that we use actually comes from, who's making it. This is coming out of the kind of anti-sweatshop movements of the the 1990s. There's also sort of a pushback against more of this disposable culture kind of idea. People were kind of rejecting the idea of using up so much stuff and, and trying to focus more on knowing where it came from, having an understanding of how it was produced, maybe knowing the people that were producing it or, or having some sense of that. Do you think some of it was driven also by a concern about the climate? For sure. I mean, this the, the kind of localist movement was very much connected to slow food, 
and other kind of slow movements as well. You know, where does stuff come from? How far does it have to travel to get to me? You know, who's making it under what conditions? And what's, what's the kind of story behind this good? If you look at where a lot of this was going on, it was in more urban areas, certainly the West Coast. TV series Portlandia, kind of making fun of this, really put that on the map as well. But, you know, some of these um, second-tier cities like Portland, Oregon, Brooklyn, New York, and, you know, New York City more broadly. I mean, that is where a lot of the this stuff seemed to emerge in the West Coast, California. Um, and when you look at Etsy and the kind of explosion of online craft, which is a, a huge part of this current wave as well, they've been in these more urban areas. And also just seeing the amazing pictures on Pinterest on social media makes you think, oh, my God, I want to make that. Yeah, right. So already by the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was a way for people to share information and images and knowledge with each other and early ways of selling online. This was a big difference between earlier waves of the craft economy. Back in the, you know, in the second wave in the 60s and 70s, it's not like people could go online and have an, a national audience quickly and easily or even a global audience for selling their goods and sharing information and showing what they were doing. So when this current wave comes along, you know, you have Etsy, the online marketplace for, you know, crafters and craft goods and artisanal goods, comes along in, in uh, 2005. And by 2006, 2007, Etsy had really exploded. And now when you think about Instagram with Pinterest, with all sorts of these ways that people have of sharing images, this very image-rich environment, it's... Yeah, it's just it feeds on itself and it means that, you know, theoretically somebody can make stuff in some small place and have a global audience of, of buyers for it. I understand that you love bicycling and you have been studying very formally craft bicycle makers. I didn't realize there were craft bicycle makers. What do they do? <laughs> yeah, well, no, there definitely are. There definitely are. There's not a whole lot of them. But yeah, a, you know, a craft bicycle maker or a handmade bicycle maker is essentially somebody who, with their own labor and by hand, fabricates the bicycle frame uh, and the fork of the bicycle that holds the front wheel on. So many of these people also paint or, you know, put finish on the bikes that they're, they're building as well. So there's also that aesthetic dimension of having them painted or they're sending them to somebody else, but who themselves is also sort of a craftsperson who specializes mainly in just painting bicycles. Do they have their own community, do you find? They do. They do. And that's, that's part of what I find interesting as a sociologist is to see how these communities of makers organize themselves or don't organize themselves um, and the kind of struggles that they have to build a community. On the one hand, while the making itself is, is primarily a solitary activity, most all bicycle builders in the United States are single person or, you know, at most they have maybe one other person working with them. So they're very solitary um, in terms of their their day to day work life. But you know, they like any market, they need to have larger connections to a larger community in order to establish what it is they do, promote their products, and build on that. You know, a lot of these crafts can be more expensive to make than to buy. Do you think crafting is in some ways a luxury? You know, I do. Um, I mean, it, you know, the simple answer is, yeah, it is, you know, it is fundamentally a luxury, especially by global standards. Yes, of course, people buying multiple thousand dollar bicycles is something that a very small portion of the world's population can do. 
and even in the United States and other wealthy countries, um, you know, it, it, these are these do tend to drift toward luxury goods. And this is one of the classic contradictions with the craft economy and artisanal production right. that's been there at every wave. Right. This was a, a criticism that was leveled way back at the arts and crafts movement. These tend to be higher cost goods. They're built without many economies of scale, right? It's much cheaper to figure out, you know, a way of building a thousand, uh, you know, a thousand bicycles a day running through a large factory where every step is sort of standardized and people specialize in one small step compared to having an individual person cut the tubing, make the decisions and do it on, in a small batch sort of way. And, you know, you're paying for people's labor power um, and their their time, which even if they're not very well compensated, that's still much higher rate than paying people in another country working in a large factory. So yeah, I think that they are, you know, the, the kind of criticism of them being luxury goods is true to an extent, but I worry that that kind of dismisses some of the importance of what's going on within the craft economy. You know, that these are more expensive goods, but especially like in the case of bicycles that I'm studying, the artisanally produced bicycles are actually not that much more costly than a lot of mass-produced bicycles. So if you compare these artisanally produced goods to other high-end goods, they aren't particularly more expensive. But I think people also want the story behind what they buy. They want to invest in the other person's um, ability to make this personally and to know that they're participating in that maker world. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's that's part of what I'd want to save here in, this, in the, the debate about whether they're just luxury goods. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people want to say, oh, you know, look at these silly artisanal people with their candles and their pickles and their expensive bikes. You know, this is all just sort of like image and it's just for rich people throwing their money around. But I think there's something more significant going on underneath, which is that, you know, a lot of the people buying a lot of these artisanal goods aren't necessarily super wealthy themselves. Part of it is that buying these goods and supporting those kinds of connections has importance to them beyond just, you know, the strict calling of pecuniary rationality of like deciding, you know, I have X dollars and I want to get this much utility. You know, what's going on is that a lot of the customers of these products, to them, they're voting with their dollars, right? They're right. kind of trying to support a social system that values the things that they value, which is, you know, independent artisans making a living, building quality goods that are going to last a long time. Um, and so, you know, they're not just viewing this through this kind of like super utilitarian frame. It's like they have a, a larger cultural frame about they want to know where the goods came from. They know who the person is that's making them. They're, they want to support that person and make it possible for them to keep doing that. Do you feel like this is you also? Do you feel a part of that world eager to marshal your resources and spend them periodically for something that has more meaning and makes more of a difference? Yeah, no, I personally, I certainly do. And I think there, I think that's part of what's gone on with this recent wave of craft is that I'm not, I'm certainly not alone in that. I mean, there's been a lot of attention paid to conscious consumerism over the last 15 years. So lots of people are sort of questioning the consumerist model because of ecological concerns, but also kind of social sustainability concerns about, you know, what does it take? What kind of a world do we have that continues to produce all this stuff that we're supposed to consume? 
And I really do, you know, I certainly in my own life, but I see lots of people around me doing this as well, trying to be more conscious of buying fewer things, but having the things that we buy uh, be better made and um, have more importance to us as well. Um, and I think that's a big part of what's been going on with this kind of latest wave of artisanal production is that there's more of this kind of alternative consumption model. So people aren't saying, oh, I'm going to completely reject consumer culture and never buy anything. But there's more interest in buying fewer things, but the things that people buy, having them really mean something and also having them be well-made, um, having them be repairable in the future, having them be adaptable in the future. So you see this uh, you know, certainly that's what's going on with the bicycle builders and the bicycle consumers that I'm studying. But when you look across lots and lots of different craft categories, that's going on as well. I mean, think of clothing, right? There's a lot more interest instead of the fast fashion model of buying more and more items every year, but then throwing them away or donating them to charity, which basically means throwing them away as well. There's more interest in brands and companies that are producing stuff in sustainable ways and transparent sort of ways, the items might cost more, but if you buy fewer of them, your net cost actually might not be any different. Instead of buying three jackets a year and then discarding them after a year, you could spend that same amount of money on a single jacket, but that coat might last you for three or four years or even longer. Well, Ben Brewer, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. I'm happy to. Thanks for inviting me. Ben Brewer is a professor of sociology at James Madison University. Next up, water, barley, hops, and yeast make some magic. Craft beer brewing exploded in the early 2000s, and since then, more and more enthusiasts are taking to the movement. Gabe Mixon is the director of the brewing program at Blue Ridge Community College in Flat Rock, North Carolina. Before becoming a commercial brewer, Gabe started the way a lot of other folks do, as a home brewer. Um, like many people, uh, my first batch of beer was a Mr. Beer Kit. It's all, all put together, so all you have to do is uh, combine all the ingredients and, and heat it up and ferment. And uh, I didn't really know much about brewing at the time, but I knew that yeast makes sugar into alcohol, and I knew that the more sugar that was in it, the more alcohol the yeast would produce. And so I thought, I'm going to make a really strong beer and dumped a bunch of table sugar into it. Table sugar, if you use too much of it, gives a pretty unpleasant off flavor in beer. So my first batch of beer was, it was completely undrinkable uh, and I ended up having to pour it out. I think it's fair to say the main ingredient in beer is water. Water makes up about 98% of the beer. So you have the German purity law, which uh, said that originally there were only three ingredients allowed in beer, malt, hops, and water. And this was before you know, yeast was discovered. Um, once Louis Pasteur proved the existence of, of yeast in, in 1857, it was added to the list. And so those are kind of the four canonical ingredients in beer. Water, malt, hops, and yeast. Wild yeast is different from your, your regular brewing yeast. 
uh, can put off some of these really funky and, and different flavors. For example, uh, goaty or uh, barnyard flavors, or sometimes referred to as sweaty horse blanket. <laughs> uh, let's see, what else? There's some hops that have a, a flavor that's described as caddy, um, meaning having a resemblance to cat urine. Um, and again, it's just part of the natural flavor profile of, of the hops and is actually a desired flavor in those beers. So uh, if a home brewer is brewing uh, with all grain, then the first step is going to be to take the malted barley and grind it up into what's called grist. Uh, and then you take that, that grist and you mix it with hot water um, to make what's called a mash. And during that process, uh, some of the enzymes that are present in the malted barley will continue to break down the starches in there into fermentable sugars. Then um, that starch conversion will be complete and it's time to strain the, uh, the liquid off of the spent grains. Um, and then you take that, that sugar-laden liquid, which is called wort, W-O-R-T, and boil it. And this is the point where you add the hops. Um, so once you've got it cooled down to a temperature that's comfortable for the yeast, you can go ahead and put the yeast in it and allow it to ferment. It may take uh, up to a week or two for the primary fermentation. And then the most common way uh, to package the beer for home brewers, or I'd say for the, the home brewer starting out, would be to bottle condition it. So what that means is you take your fermented matured beer and add just a little bit of sugar and then put it into the bottles. And what that does, uh, that additional sugar allows some yeast that is still present in the beer to re-ferment inside the bottle. And because it's capped and under pressure, uh, that fermentation producing CO2 carbonates the beer. And then at that point, if it's reached the carbonation level you want, it's ready to go ahead and chill down in the fridge and drink. If you want to get started homebrewing, my advice would be to start small. You don't really need to spend a lot of money to get started. Uh, buy some basic brewing and fermenting equipment. If you have a big stock pot, then that can be your boil kettle to start. Um, and you can use plastic fermentation buckets that are relatively inexpensive, but still work very well. I, I wouldn't necessarily get into it if your only goal is to save money on beer. Um, but if you're, if you're looking to have a hobby that's a really rewarding pursuit, um, then I think it's absolutely worth it to do it home. I can distinctly remember we made a strawberry blonde and we had this blonde ale kit that didn't have any strawberries in it, but it was a malt extract kit for blonde ale. And we made that and then crushed up a bunch of fresh strawberries into it. And it really had this great fresh strawberry flavor and it came out really clean tasting. And um, we, we went through them before we knew it, but it, that really kind of, you know, made me realize like, hey, I, you know, it is possible to actually make really good beer that you're gonna love drinking. So the trick is, you know, paying attention to what you did, keeping really good notes and making sure you can do it again next time. Gabe Mixon is the director of the brewing program at Blue Ridge Community College in Flat Rock, North Carolina. And next, the design that goes into making projects for a city. The second wave maker movement of the 1960s was accompanied by another movement, community design centers. We recently paid a visit to a community design center 
where a university design program meets the needs of a city. With good reason, associate producer Cass Adair reports. In downtown Richmond, Virginia, there's a place where the walls are covered in paper and textiles, photos and three-dimensional art. It's called the Storefront for Community Design, and at a table in one of its back corners are four women deliberating over plans for an amphitheater inside a one-acre healing garden. In my, I guess in my mind, I imagine like us adding dirt or like into the slope, so it's like the top level would be... Kim Peters is a graphic designer on the project. Next month, she'll present her team's design to a nonprofit client. And then it was like $68 per square yard of rocks that you got. So, Peters sounds like a pro, but actually she's one of 30 undergraduates from Virginia Commonwealth University who are working today here at Storefront. Thanks to a partnership between the university and the design studio, Peters and her classmates get to use their interior, fashion, and graphic design skills to help people throughout the city of Richmond. Because this... The, the slope of that kind of reflects what's going on right here from what I remember. This student-community collaboration is called MOB, which stands for Middle of Broad. That's the main street where the storefront studio is located. That name signals just how embedded this project is in the Richmond community. Unlike traditional design firms, Storefront provides design assistance to anyone, even organizations and people that couldn't otherwise afford it. Adele Ball works at Storefront. If you think about design as a luxury that not everyone can afford, then you start realizing that there are many people within the community who can't afford the design services and there's a need for low-cost and innovative, whimsical design that the mob and storefront can provide. Ball's job is to connect the students in the mob program with community members who are looking for affordable design. We designed the campaign and campaign materials for a community organizer called Lily Estes, who was running for mayor um, in 2016. Um, we've designed interior spaces for nonprofits and cafes that double as restaurants and community meeting spaces. We designed a seatbelt cover for outpatients in the Massey Cancer Center to help reduce the irritation of the seatbelt against the chemo ports. Um, so we're basically doing a branding for a dog treat company uh, local to Richmond. And we're creating like a logo for them, uh, packaging, um, as well as a box to ship these treats in. Design student Matt O'Connor is using his client's dog as inspiration for the branding project that he's working on. I like how we have a lot of time to do it. Um, it's like the whole class is basically just like this project. So it's nice to just spend a lot of time on it and do a lot of iterations and, and things like that. For Kim Peters, it's the collaborative nature of this work that makes her proud to be part of MOB. I really love that it's an interdisciplinary community because we don't really have that anywhere else within the art school where it's like you have to kind of force it yourself. Um, and I also like that we're reaching out to other people and seeing what we can do for them. Um, and also I get to like talk to people that I would never have talked to before. And that's ultimately what community design is all about. For With Good Reason, I'm Cass Adair.
This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. When Alice Waters opened the doors of her little French restaurant in Berkeley, California in 1971, at the age of 27, no one anticipated the indelible mark it would leave on the culinary landscape. Now she's an internationally known chef, restaurateur, food activist, and author of a series of best-selling recipe books based on her restaurant Chez Panisse. Perhaps even more importantly, Waters has established the Edible Schoolyard, which gets school students involved in all aspects of growing, preparing, serving, and eating their own food. Where do you think this came from? Right out there. So we're making little pumpkin pies. If it calls for one and a half cups of cooked pumpkin and we're doubling the recipe, then how much do we need? Three. Three. Does anyone remember why we turned the compost pile? Yeah. So the FBI can breathe and stuff. What's the FBI? The fungus, bacteria, insects. The compost. It's kind of like you turn it, it kind of dries out, and then like about one month, they're kind of soil. We cook, we cook a lot of this stuff, especially the greens in the kitchen. We use the stuff from here. And it feels better to have something that's fresher and newer, and you know where it comes from. Alice Waters' work at the Edible Schoolyard has also developed into her school lunch initiative, which has the broader goal of bringing school children into a new relationship with food by making a healthy, fresh, sustainable meal a part of the school day. Alice, what are you eating these days that's really been pleasing to you? You know how we all go on jags. <laughs> I do know. I think I am having a breakfast every single day that is so delicious using an organic tortilla, cooking it right there on the fire, and I'm filling it with some avocado that I've spiced with a little cumin salt and pepper, a little bit of olive oil and a touch of lime, and I put that inside this warm tortilla, and I just eat it right there and then. It's so gratifying. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard that you really fell in love with what food could be when you spent a year, when you were very young, in France. Is that right? It's true. When I was 19, I sort of took my junior year abroad, and I'd never traveled out of the United States before that time. And it was France back in the early 60s, before fast food came into France. This was a very slow food culture. And people went to the market twice a day, their little farmer's markets, to buy food for their meals. And it was a time when children came home to have lunch from school and spent two hours, had lunch with their family. I felt like I had never eaten before that time. I was just brought into a whole different experience that probably began with a hot baguette and apricot jam, but ended up being just uh, an awakening for me about 
what it was to dine, what it was to to sit with your friends and have a conversation over something that was so delicious and new to me. And we were two students supposedly going to a course at the Sorbonne. But I really never went to class. I, I guess I, I understood that the experiences of traveling around Paris, of visiting museums, of hitchhiking out to Brittany were more important than going to class. How was that food experience different from what you had had growing up in your own house? I grew up in New Jersey in the 50s, really. And yes, my parents had a victory garden that they had during the war, and we didn't really have money to go out and eat. So in the summer, it was very tasty with corn and tomatoes just picked and maybe strawberries. But during the winter, my mother wasn't a very good cook. And so the meals were very plain and very much of that time, frozen food, canned food. And even though my mother cared about nutrition very much, she just never learned the basics of cooking. I remember growing up with some of those foods, too. And I remember about three decades ago when I was in a really nice restaurant locally, and somebody served me a dish of ravioli. It never occurred to me it could be something other than the canned kind. <laughs> it was so delicious. Have you ever had that food experience? Well, that's what happened to me when I was in France. I ate wild strawberries there, and I didn't know what they were when they came to me on a dish at the end of a meal. Uh, they looked a little tiny, and, and I couldn't identify them. But when I tasted them, with a little bit of creme fraiche and a sprinkle of sugar. I fell in love. I guess that's the best way of saying it. I just I just said, what is this delicious fruit? And I wanted more. And I always ordered them after every meal. And I happened to be lucky to be in France at that moment in time when they were collected from the woods. But it just piqued my curiosity. And then that began the, the sort of exploration. I was pulled into the whole world of unknown tastes. When did you, how much longer after that, did you conceive of the idea to begin your remarkable restaurant in California? I guess it was about uh, six or eight years after that experience in France. I came back home, and I just wanted to live like the French. I wanted to shop that way. I wanted to sit down at the table every night with my friends. I started cooking, and I was very lucky to find Elizabeth David's cookbooks. Uh, she was a British writer. She had gone to France like I had and had her world opened up to food. So I started cooking at home. And then I said, well, maybe I should open a little place where my friends could come and eat and I could make a living from this. 
course, it was wildly popular and successful. Chez Panisse is the name, right? Yes. And the amazing thing is you didn't just leave it at the restaurant. You brought across the country through the Edible Schoolyard Project a wonderful opportunity for middle schoolers and elementary school children to change how they saw their own food. We started uh, that project about 20 years ago now. I had just had a child, and I was worried about her future. And public education is really our last truly democratic institution. Almost every child goes to school. And I just felt like if we could connect kids to food and the environment, that we could really change the world. I just believe that you could win kids over. You could bring them into uh, another way of thinking. The same thing had happened to me when I was in Paris. I was really uh, sort of seduced by flavors and, and a kind of an awakening of my senses. And I felt certain that we could do the same thing in the public schools. It's not at all about telling kids what to eat. It's just bringing them into a new relationship to food and the environment. How did you grow it across the country? Well, it began at one school in Berkeley, a middle school with about a 1,000 children who spoke 22 different languages at home. So you can imagine that this could be a great test case. We fortunately had an enlightened principal at that school, and he hoped that I might help him beautify the school by making a garden there. But when we got to talking together, I told him that I just didn't want a garden and a school to beautify it that I wanted a garden and a kitchen classroom where they became the labs, if you will, for all the academic subjects. So you bring the children into the garden to learn about math and about science. And in the kitchen, maybe using food as a way to teach about Egypt or Japan, you'd be making that food and talking about the history of that place. So I had this very, very big vision of edible education from the moment I stepped onto the campus. And did the principal come to embrace this idea of the edible garden at the school? Well, it was so amazing because uh, after we kind of toured around the school and I told him this big vision, he said, oh, thank you so much. I'll get back to you. <laughs> and I thought, oh, thank goodness. I, I could never do that. But six months later, he called me up and he said, I think we're ready. He said, let's begin with the garden and then we'll have a kitchen classroom. And then we'll start talking about school lunch. Now, how many gardens across the country would you say have been created in schoolyards? <laughs> well, we have 5,500 schools uh, around the world and in the United States that are doing either a garden or a kitchen classroom or a curriculum and school lunch 
or all of those pieces together. Do you think most of them thrive, or do they plant one with great gusto and then it just dies? Well, there's all kinds of things that happen, and sometimes it's just an enthusiastic teacher, and when that teacher leaves, the garden withers with her departure. But I think more and more are becoming part of really the academic curriculum, are becoming a lab of that subject and therefore are maintained by the school. You know, they're investing in that classroom. You're very serious when you say you are proposing that lunch be turned into an academic subject in school, right? (laughs) Well, I want to make sure that we have the time and attention to give children an experience of eating that is not like a fast food concession. And right now, really, it is. It is. And even if it's more healthy, we may put apples and oranges out there, but they're in the garbage at the end of lunchtime. And so I want to really bring children back to their senses, back to a pleasurable experience of eating together. And that's what happens in the kitchen classroom of the Edible Schoolyard. I think you would be so shocked if you came in and observed the children as they both make food and then sit down at tables and eat together. They're proud of themselves, and they do it with great enthusiasm. That sounds so wonderful. It's a great class because... We take Iron Chef, that program that's on television, but we kind of turn it on its head. We're not just looking for the best tasting food. We're not just looking for who was most clever and did it most quickly. We're asking the kids to collaborate, to make a meal. And it is so exciting for them to be involved in this because even the students that don't win are having a conversation like a conversation we might have in the kitchen of Chez Panisse. And they're saying to each other, you know, I wonder if we had roasted those peppers rather than serving them raw, whether they would have been more tasty And it kinds of very sophisticated uh, conversations about food, how to cook with very limited ingredients. What a beautiful challenge they have. I'm also intrigued by the experiences of a fellow pioneer in trying to find good food for children in cafeterias, Anne Cooper, She created super healthy foods, including a pizza with vegetable toppings, and then found the school children couldn't stand it. They could learn to eat almost anything given time, but she found that a palate once formed is not easily expanded. Is that a given? Do we know that? I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think when children are empowered to make the decisions about the food that they're eating, and they're engaged in the growing of the food, 
They all eat it. They all eat it. It's kind of magic, and I consider that the magic comes from nature and from the meaning that one feels when one is picking something from a garden and preparing something. It it feels so basic and so important. And once they understand this, they will forever be involved with making the right choices about what they eat. Have you, have you had failures you've learned from <laughs> by trying to take the chocolate milk and the soda out of a high schooler's cafeteria and found that, you know, they were up in arms? I would never, you know, take it out right away. What I would do is create something else over there that was much more interesting, which is a real Montessori idea. You just say, come over here. Why don't we make a, a banana and strawberry milkshake? Oh, there you go. Right. Let's go. <laughs> but the engagement is critical. They need to be empowered to do this themselves. Even the youngest children, they need to be, you know, picking that food. They need to be helping to pour the, the juice into the glasses. They need to be helping to share. But... It's my experience that it's, it's never too late. It just takes longer for adults who are addicted to salt and sugar. I thought it was going to be really difficult for teenage kids. I really did because I was bringing in these beautiful peaches, but they looked at them and, and they were all fuzzy on the outside and they didn't want to eat them. And I realized that the engagement the empowerment that they have from working in the garden and, and, and really doing the work themselves is what changes their palates. Do you think projects around the country and around the world that the U.S. is progressing in any way <laughs> toward the slow food movement, toward appreciating good ingredients and safe ingredients? Is, is that still too small a portion of our population? Well, I see it happening across the country. I'm very connected with a whole farming movement of young people. I'm very connected to the local movement and people really concentrating on eating seasonally and eating what's available in that particular place. And I'm not just talking about you know, obviously warm climates. I'm talking about Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont. I mean, we're learning about greenhousing. We have to have greenhousing in the winter. But the most amazing people like Will Allen, who's way up there in the north in Wisconsin, I mean, to be able to grow food in urban areas, to be able to grow food on rooftops uh, in, in Brooklyn and New York, feels um, to me that there's a, a movement that's amazing, but it just hasn't surfaced yet in the press. It's like it's almost, uh, it's in a counterculture place. It's still a it's, little bit elite. But it's, it's so not elitist what's going on because we're talking about 
taking care of the farmers who take care of the land. We want to give our money to those people. And it's really a question of learning how to cook that food. Maybe you spend a lot for an organically grown chicken, but how that can be three meals for your family. I think we have lost our desire to cook and our know-how. I'm not sure we ever learn to cook for pleasure in this country, which is very sad to me because we, we, I think, came from a lot of Puritan roots. We came from all different countries, and we didn't want the drudgery. And we got swept away by a fast food culture after the war. And I'm convinced that it has really indoctrinated us to the fast, cheap, and easy. And we think that food should be cheap when, in fact, it's precious. People have always spent money for food. If it's cheap, somebody's missing out. And that's usually the farmer. So this idea of buying directly from the people who are taking care of the land for the future is deeply part of the movement that is multiplying geometrically across this country and around the world. You were awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama, who noted your lifelong mission to bring together the ethical and the edible. What does that mean to you? Oh, it was a great, great honor for me to be there and to have food recognized as something really important and an essential part of culture and, and to recognize my work. But what I'm doing is something that has roots in the beginning of civilization. Truly, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it comes from the beginning of time when we uh, ate together with family and friends. We always uh, bought food that was local and available, ate seasonally, uh, were connected with the farmers, would always take care of the land because that's where our food came from. We celebrated the harvest. And so I'm, I'm just taking those very important human values and trying to awaken people to what's really important, to the beauty of nature. And I find it so meaningful in my life right now. Well, Alice Waters, thank you for sharing your thoughts with me today on With Good Reason. You're most welcome. Thank you. Alice Waters is a chef, restaurateur, author, and activist. Her latest book is the memoir, Coming to My Senses, The Making of a Counterculture Cook. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks to Chris Boros of WMRA in Harrisonburg. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. 
I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.